Thanks, band. Thanks, Peter, again. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church, and a special welcome to those who are just visiting, and a happy Father's Day to the dads out in the room. Uh, my name is Taylor. If you've been here a while, you know that I'm not typically the one up here talking, um, but I am one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and one of the privileges of being an elder at Hiawatha is that we get to preach once or twice a year. And luckily for you all, if you don't like it very much, uh, Pastor Chris or Spencer will be up here again soon. So, uh, good news for you. <laughs> um, with that said, welcome. We're in the middle of a series we simply call Open Mic. Uh, we do this often between larger sermon series like we did with John. We just wrapped that up in May. It gives us an opportunity to preach things that are on our hearts, as well as topics that have been on your hearts, things we ask, or things we say are big questions. Um, so a couple of months ago, we asked you to send in any topics or questions you had that were of interest to you, things that come up in your community group, things that come up in the world, or just things that come up in your day-to-day -day living. And we got several awesome questions, and I get to preach one, on one of the questions that was asked. And I believe it was asked in various forms by more than one person. I know we've talked about it in our community group. Um, but the question is, and I apologize uh, for my paraphrase, for those of you who asked this question, how do we take our actions seriously in light of the gospel? How do we take our actions seriously in light of the gospel? And I think, uh, and I know that this came in in the form of a couple different questions or broken into multiple pieces. Um, the first piece was, how do we take our sins seriously or our negative actions um, and the other side of it was, how do we take good works seriously or our positive actions? Uh, and inside of the question, or I would say assumed by the question, is a few other questions. One is, should we take our sins seriously? If so, how seriously? How seriously do we take Christian works? And those are awesome questions. This is an awesome question. Thanks for sending it in, those who did. And so... The first thing we're going to say is, why? Why is that even a question? <laughs> what prompts that question in our life? Um, why did that get sent in several times? Why, as pastors, do we hear this in one way, shape, or form? Um, a good number. Um, how do we take our actions seriously in light of the gospel? Um, I think the reason that this question comes up is that Christianity, unlike any other religion in the world, is emphatically not about what you do. It's fully, 100% about what has been done for you, and it's a simple invitation to believe. Unlike a religion that asks you to move towards God, Christianity says that God has moved towards you and is constantly moving towards you. It's not asking you for a great show of love towards God, but is instead God showing his great love towards you. One well-quoted verse about Christianity truly not being about your actions is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, your actions, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2 and the whole of the New Testament makes it clear that you are not saved by your own hands, not from yourselves, not by your actions. And that actually gives God all the glory and praise. 
If it was from your actions, you could walk around and say, hey, I'm pretty good. God, you're lucky to have me. Your eyes would not have very much reason in that case to get off of your belly button. Alternatively, though, when your actions don't match up, when you feel like you're failing, you would say, I'm a failure. There's no hope. I can't do it. Which is probably more accurately what it would feel like all of the time. But what matters to God in Christianity and salvation is not your actions, but Christ's actions on your behalf. His perfect actions, his death and resurrection being everything you need to be brought into relationship with the God who loves you. And man, does that take a weight off our shoulders. Does that just make us feel so free? We dance in the street. We'll tell our friends about that message. Delightful, freeing relationship with God. We have, it allows us to live in this just joyful self-forgetfulness and humility. And in that truth, we find ourselves thankful, worshiping God for what he's done, and our eyes get to come off from ourselves and enjoy him instead. All right, still not seeing the question. Um, but we see that truth. We're welcomed into the Christian faith. That's how we enter through the doors. That's the gospel of good news that we hear. And then we come across passage in, passages in the Bible that are hard, or they, they don't make sense in light of that. Uh, we find some passages in the Old Testament and the New that are hard to understand. How do those fit in with good news? One such, such passage is in the book that we'll be in for most of today. In the third chapter of Colossians, verse 23, it says this, Whatever you do, your actions, work at it with all your heart as though working for the Lord. Your actions, do they matter? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. I remember when I first started to fall in love with the theology of grace, um, I would read sections like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and I would be just so happy. Um, I would feel so close to God and just rest there, rest in that truth, never wanting to leave. Uh, I felt so loved that it wasn't about me. Um, and honestly, I felt so loved it wasn't about me, and without thinking about it, I think that truth started to change me slowly. I felt like grace was impacting my life more than any TED Talk or self-improvement movement ever could. But in those times, to be fair, when I first uh, started falling in love with the theology of grace, I really struggled with verses like this. Um, so I would have been the one sending this question in regularly. What do I do with this verse? Uh, I struggled to read the entirety of Scripture during this time. I would come to Colossians 2, or, uh, 3.23 and say, well, this feels different. Uh, I know it can't be contradictory. Fully believe that all of Scripture is of God, so I don't think it's contradictory. But gosh, when I read that, I do not feel the yoke is easy and the burden is light message of the gospel. And I did not know what to do with verses like this. And there were a lot of them. So if that's you here today, wondering how to think about your actions, how to think about your work, your sin, in light of the gospel, should I take them seriously? What do I do when I fail? What do I do when I do okay? Uh, know that you're not alone. Uh, and while I hope that this passage that we'll be in today might help a little bit, for me it wasn't a one-and-done sort of thing. Uh, I had to regularly dive back into the gospel and ask these questions. 
Um, and so if it's not a one-and-done message for you either, that's okay. Um, we are just a few of the whole lot of Christianity the last couple millennia that have been asking this question. So uh, that's the background. Uh, to help us kind of dive into the question, we're going to be in Colossians today starting at the end of chapter 2 and working through the middle of chapter 3. And since it's not normal at Hiawatha to dive right into the middle of a book without any uh, context, here's just a brief background on Colossians. Uh, first of all, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. If you're new to the New Testament or Christianity or the Bible at large, Paul wrote a large portion of the New Testament, about a quarter of it in terms of word count, and almost half of it in terms of uh, how many letters or short books were his. He initially was a persecutor of Christians, feeling like they were leading people astray, but God met him in Jesus and he fell in love with the gospel and Christ. The second thing, he wrote it while he was in prison in Rome, uh, probably around AD 62, uh, post Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you wanted to read more about Paul's imprisonments, you could find those at the end of Acts in chapter 27 and 28, um, or in the other books he wrote while imprisoned, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Who did he write it to? The Colossians. You guessed it. You guys are all so smart. Um, he wrote it to the Colossians, the church in Colossae, um, and he wrote the letter specifically to his brothers and sisters in Christ, the churches in Colossae. Paul, from afar, was often pastoring, shepherding, and loving people, even though it was at a different distance, and at this point, he didn't really have a choice to be at a distance. That was forced. Um, but he wanted all these churches to know that Jesus loved them, that he was thinking about them, praying for them, and most importantly, reminding them of the gospel. So though Paul wrote it to the churches in Galatia, if you're not a, or in Colossa, if you're not a Christian or wouldn't consider yourself part of the church, aren't really sure if this Jesus stuff is right for you, we're so glad you're here. Though he addressed it to his brothers and sisters in Christ, he assumed and wanted his letters to be passed around. His hope was that the message of the gospel would spread to those who don't know Jesus. If that's you, we're really glad you're here, and Jesus is definitely glad you're here. More on the overview. This is a map of the Mediterranean Sea. Sorry that it's uh, small. Um, and that little pin is Colossae uh, in present-day Turkey. And Paul was writing from Rome, right there. Quite a distance. Not too bad if you have a big boat or a speedboat. Paul did not. Um, so his letter would have to travel from point A to point B. And this is me accidentally taking a picture of myself in Rome last year. <laughs> that picture could be taken from anywhere. You wouldn't know the difference. It could be my backyard for all you know. Uh, all you can see is some really high exposure uh, tree, me wearing a lanyard, an FBI-like earpiece, and for some reason, two pairs of sunglasses around my neck. But you have to take my word on it, that was in Rome, and we were close to the Colosseum. Uh, not a good picture. But with that as the background to Colossians, let's turn to our section for today. The end of Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, we'll go through verse 13 in chapter 3. 
Uh, feel free to turn in your pew Bibles, follow along in the sermon insert, or just sit back, relax, because I'll put it on the screens. Colossians, starting at 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. All right, that's our passage for today. And the first truth in our passage today that I'd like you to take note of is that if you are a Christian, you have died. Verse 220, he says, you died with Christ. What is Paul talking about? What does it mean that you are dead? I don't feel dead. Do you feel dead? No, I do not feel dead. Some of you might be answering a little more every day, Taylor, <laughs> a little more. Every day, and I feel you. Uh, I am starting to understand the need for days off at the gym, and tweaking my knee does take more than two hours to recover. Uh, but feeling older every day is not what he is talking about. He's referring to what happened to us and for us in the gospel, which if we were reading through the entirety of Colossians, you would have seen in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Our problem was that before Christ, our actions, what it says here is our evil behavior, uh, our self-sufficiency, our worship of ourselves, our selfishness, our actions, what we do, set us apart from God. No matter how good we thought we were or think we are, and sometimes how good we think we are is exactly the problem, 
We don't measure up to God's requirements of us. If I'm honest, I don't even measure up to my own requirements and goals for myself. Um, I'm a no New Year's resolution kind of guy because I would be a January 2nd diet is over kind of guy if I was. Uh, My actions don't measure up to what I wish my own standards were. Uh, And if we're honest, as the Bible is with us, our actions definitely do not live up to God's standards. And it says here that our actions made us enemies of God. Note, not necessarily permanent enemies of God, not enemies that don't get an opportunity for reconciliation. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is perfect, demands perfection, but he is also a God of love who makes a way back to himself. So, thank God that there is a but at the beginning of verse 22. In your actions you went far away, but he has reconciled you or restored relationship with you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Hallelujah. God's penalty for sin, or the wage he pays you rather, is death. Our trespasses require a death. But the beauty of the gospel is that before death could come to you, Jesus steps in and says, I'll take that. In your place, I'll die. And his death, if you trust in him, is counted as your death. So Paul can truly say to Christians, you died. Past tense. Christianity then actually took your actions more seriously than you ever could. Christianity didn't just look at your failures and say, try a little harder, set some more goals, do a little better. You're almost there. All you need is to take your actions a little more seriously. No. Christianity says your actions, no matter how hard you ever tried, deserve death. You literally cannot take your actions more seriously than that. But at the same time, instead of looking at you and saying, you take your actions more seriously, Jesus looks at you and says, I will take my actions seriously on your behalf, and I will give my completion of them to you. So in a very real way, the first answer to the question, how do we take our actions seriously in light of the gospel, is that Jesus already did. And because of that, you honestly, in a very real way, in a self-forgetting way, don't have to. Think about this. What kind of freedom would you have if you knew that this is how God saw you today, currently? No change in actions holy in his sight, without blemish. Free from accusation. If he looks at you like this today, what does that say about your actions? They say, for one, they're not sticky anymore. You do them And they don't stick to you. They don't touch you or your identity. You do something really cool today. God looks at you and he says, you are without blemish. 
You do something really bad today, God looks at you and says, without blemish. You do something anywhere in between, God looks at you and says, you're without blemish. Do you feel like your life is one that feels free from accusation? Outside of these truths, I do not feel that way about mine. If you were to see my whole last week or just yesterday, uh, there would be plenty of accusations, a few that come to mind. Uh, Selfish in how I treat Megan. Angry at the drivers on the road that are clearly a hundred times worse at driving than I am and always at fault. Annoyed at Minneapolis bikers on the road, even when they're doing everything right, Zach. Uh, (laughs) And especially when they're not doing everything right. And if you could only see me when I'm being competitive, when I play basketball with Connor and our team, or playing board games, you would, not saying you would think this, but you very well might think, he's an elder? Uh, But guess what? God says, he looks at my life and all those things and whatever that list is for you and he says, I declare you free from accusation. Free. None of those things touch you. None. If you're a Christian, none of your actions have power to define you anymore. So on the one hand, in the gospel, God paid for your actions and took them more seriously than you ever could. But on the other hand, he freed you from your actions. And in that gospel freedom, we don't have to obsess or stress about our actions anymore. They cannot define our relationship to God. So the first point in this passage is that you died with Christ. And the next thing builds off of that. You died to the law. Since then, you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Um, First, why are we relating law and elemental spiritual forces of this world, which is a super weird way of saying that. Um, First, a few reasons. Immediately preceding this passage, Paul was talking about the law, the Old Testament new moon ceremonies and Sabbath days, Those things being a shadow of Christ, not over us anymore, and he's continuing that logic here. Uh, Secondly, just for fun, uh, we'll look at what the law is. Paul calls the law in Galatians a teacher, a guardian, uh, something that teaches us some basic elements, some basic building blocks that would give way eventually and lead us to Christ. The elementary spiritual forces phrase might be in your Bible as rudimentary principles or just simply as elements. Um, All of those work. Um, But basically, think like material elements that on their own are just elements, but will lead us to compounds. Um, And they'll build and bring us to compounds or letters in the alphabet that will eventually give way to words. Uh, The law was put in place to lead to something better. Uh, I like how uh, there's Strong's dictionary definition of elemental spiritual force was just kind of fun. It says, any first thing from which others rise. I like that definition. Uh, The law came before Christ's crucifixion, but it was meant to lead us to him and give rise to Christ in its place. 
It indeed teached our need for Christ, saying, here's the standard. If you want to relate to God on your actions, knowing very well you can't, here's the standard. And it's designed to lead you to Christ. Uh, the other part of what the law is, is that it's of this world. Uh, meaning, it really can only apply to your life until you die. Uh, partly because so many of the laws do with things uh, that are physical in nature. Don't touch this, don't physically do this, don't wear that. But if you die, you're not really of the world anymore, are you? The law telling you to do or not do things, not touch things, is quite irrelevant if you're dead and can't do anything. And that is where we're at. Um, so those two reasons are sufficient for me to relate the law to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But just for fun, my favorite reason is because of Michael Scott. Look at this old dude and his Rolodex go. Uh, I'm kidding. But, as Chris says, if you are ever stuck in a tricky passage, unsure of what something might mean, one helpful thing to do is ask, where else do I see this in Scripture? Uh, Chris will say, take a look at the Rolodex, your Bible Rolodex. There's got to be a more modern way of saying that, but it still works, and it provides office quotes, so I will use it. Um, and luckily for us, I'm not going to go there because it's a big passage, but Paul uses this same phrase once more. He uses it in Galatians. And in Galatians, I think it's actually more clear that he's talking and using the law with the elemental spiritual forces of the world interchangeably. Uh, if you want to take a look, it's in chapter 4, verse 3 of Galatians. Um, I'd encourage you to read up through that point as well so you can get Paul's whole gist. But basically, he's telling them that they were under the law, but Christ came to redeem them out from under the law. I digress with Michael Scott. Looking back on our passage then, we can read it like this. Since then with Christ you died to the law. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. To tell you and encourage you that you died to the law is basically to say, never, for any reason, ever, do anything. No, I'm just kidding. That was another office quote. Um, it's saying don't go back to relating to God on the basis of your actions. Again, you used to have this relationship with the law, but you died. The law and its hold over your life is over. Um, I really like how Paul says this in Romans. Uh, it's a beautiful picture, Romans 7, 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Sometimes I think, um, I think maybe you do this too, um, but I feel Jesus saved me from my sins, but now moving forward, I want to do something for him. I've been such a disappointment for such a long time, but now... Now in the gospel, I am ready to be a man after God's own heart. It is tailor time, everybody. And I look around for something to do, something that will make God really happy, and I remember the law. And I walk over to Jesus, and I say, Jesus, thank you so much for saving me. I really just cannot thank you enough. want to live this life for you. I'm ready to do it. 
you gave me the gospel, here we go. And now to show you how much I love you and to say thank you, I'm going to go work on my relationship with my old husband over here and hang out with him for a while. Won't that make you happy? And Jesus, who loves me, says, Son, I love you so much, but the law is a mirror, not a window. If you stare into it, all you'll see is my, yourself, and I want your eyes on me now. I want your eyes on what I've done for you. Come over here. Let's hang out with you and me now. Jesus didn't pay for your sins and fulfill the law so that you could go back and work on your relationship with the law, except this time with effort, 2.0. He fulfilled the law's requirements in your life so you could come to him, as Romans says here, so that you can belong to him instead. And he doesn't want to share your attention. He doesn't want half on him, half on the law. He is the basis and the only basis of your new life. The law says, eat this and you'll die. The gospel says, Jesus died for you. The law says, do this and you'll live. The gospel says, he lives and so you do live. So don't go back to the law. The last thing that I want to talk about, I say last thing and you all get hopeful, but the last thing is the biggest thing, so... Just know that. (laughs) The last thing we want to talk about today, if we died, and if we died to the law, what do we do, not with the law, but with New Testament-y, action-centered encouragements? Uh, You've maybe heard them called imperatives before. I like calling them action-centered encouragements because it's a mouthful. Uh, But let's look at just a couple of those to close today. On the first side of Christ-centered or action-centered encouragements, the actions we don't necessarily want in our lives. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. All right, some things I don't necessarily want in my life. And on the other hand, some things that I would love in my life. Uh, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What do we do when we come to passages like this? The first thing I want to say is when you look at things like this, you look at lists in the New Testament that maybe have some action verbs in them, is first and foremost... Don't turn them into a law. Do not take these and revert them back to a law. What does that mean? How can you take a good thing and convert it back to the law? Um, Pastor Chris, I stole half of this content. No, I'm just kidding. But Pastor Chris uh, sent over uh, six helpful things uh, to look out for that can take good things and turn them into the law. Um, I'm only going to mention three of them but I'm sure he'd share, if you asked nicely, the rest of them. Um, First, don't conditionalize them. Don't take these good things and conditionalize them. Don't read these encouragements and put them into the form of, if I do blank, then blank will happen in my relationship with God. This could sound like 
if I can just increase my compassion more, then God will be happier with me. If I can stop doing this sin that just keeps coming back, then God will answer my prayers. Uh, I just know that God is waiting for me to do blank so that we can feel close again. You can say, man, I would love more compassion for people, but put a period there, period, full stop, don't add conditions. Don't make it a condition. Nothing will change in your status, in your relationship with God if you do. Nothing will change if you don't. There are no conditions here based on your actions. And looking back at those two lists, let's look how our passage talks about them as without condition. Here we go. You have died, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs in your earthly nature. You have put on clothes of the new self. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You are dead. You have clothes of righteousness on you. Whether you're successful or unsuccessful in any future action has no bearing on what is true of you. If you don't put to death any more sins in this life, you won't be any less dead with Christ. And if you don't clothe yourself with any more good things, you won't lose any part of the clothing that Christ has already given to you as a gift. The law says, clothe yourselves with compassion and God will have compassion on you. The gospel said God is compassionate with you and he has given you every single piece of clothing you'll ever need. The law says, put to death the sins inside of you, otherwise you will die. The gospel says, Jesus died for you, and now you are dead to any performance-driven relationship you had. Adding conditions to desirous or non-desirous actions converts them right back into the law. So church, don't conditionalize them. Second, uh, resist the urge to measure them. Uh, This is more of just a pastoral encouragement. Uh, There's no benefit to you to measuring them. Zero, but that will quickly turn them into a functional law in your life if you start tracking good days, bad days, putting a calendar up on your wall of when the last thing you, time you did such and such was, how much did I do this good thing today, how much did I do this bad thing today, when was the last time, and so on and so forth. Do you want to know how God tracks or measures your actions? He doesn't. Hebrews 8, 12, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They're blotted out. They're not tracked. They're not measured. He doesn't keep a calendar. Taylor prayed today. He didn't pray for five days. He prayed for two minutes. He skipped praying while at dinner because he was at a McDonald's. I'm going to get him later for that one. Nope. (laughs) He remembers it no more. There is no measuring. Do you know what the best way to not pray is? The best way to encourage yourself not to pray? For me, is to think about when the last time I prayed was. The best way to get me to stop praying, oh gosh, 
I haven't prayed in a week. God's got to be so disappointed in me. I'm so disappointed in me. Shame creeps in. Fear creeps in. Now I don't want to pray. If I do, he's the scary God. And if I do it, I'm in the measuring mindset. My prayers have nothing to do with my enjoyment of God's presence, remembering what he's done for me. I go into prayer as guilt management rather than worship and communion. So don't measure, don't track. God loves you and he's not measuring. But the measuring stick is Christ and you already have him. The measuring stick that God uses on your life is Christ and you already have him. Third and lastly, how do we approach Christian actions? We stare at Jesus through them. Paul's intention, I don't think, was to preach the gospel in chapter 1 and 2 in Colossians and then immediately switch focus to our actions. I think he's still focusing on Jesus, just twisting that diamond in the light a little bit. Uh, whenever you read about the fruit of the Spirit, list of actions or clothes to put on, Paul, you could say, is painting a picture of Jesus. Before he gets to verse 12 with the encouragement to put on certain things, in verse 11, Paul says, Christ is all, and he is in all. So, when he goes back and he paints a picture in verse 12 of a believer, the most true thing of that picture is that while imperfectly, maybe, a picture of you, it is perfectly a completely true picture of Jesus. So reading verse 12 through the human lens, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But then staring through that and seeing Jesus, Jesus was God's true chosen one, holy and dearly loved by his Father. Jesus is the essence of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And you have him. You have him. He is your clothing. Let's look at Jesus for a minute. Compassion. He saw a great crowd and was moved with compassion towards them. Kindness. God made us alive with Christ that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Gentleness. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And patience. This is Paul talking. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I want to pause here just to make sure you guys don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, the encouragement is not to stare at Jesus in some sort of what would Jesus do sort of way. It's not primarily about looking at Jesus as an example to follow or even the power to follow. No. Fretting over your actions and whether or not they image perfectly is a quick way to high anxiety. Trust me, I know that path. 
That will take you away from enjoying Jesus if you're looking primarily at yourself. Let me just put you at ease. You won't image him perfectly. You will mess up. So don't think, what would Jesus do? Think, what did Jesus do? And just stare at him, what he's done, and enjoy him. If we can look at verse 12 with one more lens, the gospel lens, it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, remember the clothing you have in Jesus and envelop yourself in it. Remember, it's not about what you do, it's about him. And in him, you are counted as holy and dearly loved. You're counted as humble. You're counted as patient. You're counted as kind. And in him, you're counted as dead. With your debt fully paid, your sexual immorality, impurity, greed, and any other evil desires are fully counted as paid. So far removed from you, that they are dead to you, even as we struggle to experience it on this life in, its, in the full. No matter how much patience or purity Jesus ever lives out in you, for when it does happen, it will be him living it out in you, but no matter how much he ever lives out in you, he has already counted you perfect. So when you read, clothe yourselves with compassion, or any New Testament encouragement, don't respond introspect, introspect, introspect. How do I increase in this area? Instead, let your primary focus be on Jesus. I have put on Jesus. He was compassionate towards me. He saw me wandering like a sheep without a shepherd, and he said, I want that one. He saw someone who couldn't bear the weight of their sins, so he took it off their shoulders. He saw a perfectionist swimming in a pool of unbearable expectations. And he said, let me be your perfection. Go home, melt into Jesus and what he's done for you. Melt into his actions, his forgiveness, his patience and love. Hiawatha Church, don't take yourself or your actions too seriously. Jesus already has. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you took our actions seriously so we don't have to. We thank you that what you have freely given in return is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, an inheritance that is untouched by our actions. Our positive actions can't make it any more of an infinite gift, and our negative actions can't spoil or fade its value. I pray that you would help us melt into that. For the first time, or for the 10,000th time, would we melt into your grace, Jesus. And in Jesus' name, amen.